following program is brought to you by Total Theater Online. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff or management of WGBB. You're listening to the station that serves your community, 1240 WGBB. And now it's time for Dave's Gone By with David Lefkowitz. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dave's Gone By, an hour of talk radio, music, amusement, and confusement on WGBB AM 1240. Coming to you from a Babylon studio and a Freeport antenna, this is Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, humorist, theater critic, and pseudo-intellectual with a very egg-heady show for you tonight. I am so proud because... You know, this program is mostly a comedy show. I play music, sometimes have a serious conversation, sometimes get a little personal, but mostly it's for laughs. And I don't care what kind of laughs. Nobody minds a cheap laugh until after they've finished chuckling. So, yes, I say with a heavy heart that I've indulged in my share of toilet humor, fart jokes, barf noises, ethnic stereotypes, bad puns, and jokes so old, they forget their own punchlines. But every once in a while, I try to raise the level of discourse to be more highbrow, to show that Dave's Gone By is more than just an hour of silly blather. It can be an hour of mentally stimulating, politically aware, and educationally wholesome blather. So to that end... I bring you this brand new episode, our 42nd show, titled The 42 of Summer. Get it? The witty cinematic illusion mixed with a play not only on words, but on numbers. God, I'm good. No, but don't think for a minute that because this episode is a little more perspicacious, piquant, and pungent than the others, don't think it won't be as eclectic, madcap, and dare I say, polychromatic as our usual fare. Think I'm jesting? Just cock your ear to the lineup for tonight. And if you've ever had your ear cocked, you know just how kinky that can be. No, I'm sorry, that was cheap. It was a tasteless play on the word cock, which is not the kind of humor we will be doing here tonight. Every other night, sure. Every other night, this program will have more cock in it than ten gallons of chicken soup. But tonight, we refrain. We're putting our cocks away back in the hen house. Even courtly cocks will be off limits. But tonight, tonight, we take the high road. Smart stuff for smart people like you. Our special guest will be a man who has written dozens of articles from the New York Times, USA Today, Salon.com, Newsweek, NPR. He's a political satirist, finding it a little tough to operate under the current administration, and he'll tell us all about that, plus juicy tidbits about the people he's worked with, like JFK Jr., and people he's fought with, like Bill O'Reilly. You don't want to miss Bruce Kluger joining us a little later. We also have The News Gone By, a wry look at current events, and cool music by cabaret singer Elizabeth Welch, country legend Roger Miller, and stoner icons The Grateful Dead. It only remains for me to remind you that this program is rated DGB-13, the radio equivalent of PG-13, only it's not copyrighted, so we can't make it mean anything we want to. In this case, it just means that if you have young children or people who might be offended at even the suggestion that all is not right with the world, you may want to warn them, or at least sound the big words out phonetically for them. And one other reminder, Dave's Gone By airs Sunday nights, 8 p.m. on WGBB, which continues to operate without its internet web stream. The station has a new website, www.am1240wgbb.com, and they're working on getting the audio stream back up. But until then, people who've listened to this program on the Internet will have to wait a little while longer to hear it again. That's why I still can't say for sure if I'll still be here week after week after week. But so far, I've been able to continue the program, but so many things are up in the air, there's really no telling what will happen seven days from now, let alone seven weeks from now. Best way to know? Get on the Dave's Gone By email list. There's no fee, no obligations, we don't sell the list to anyone. Just a way for me to let you know when and where you can hear this program next. Just email me at davesgoneby at aol.com. No apostrophe, davesgoneby, D-A-V as in Victor, E-S, goneby at aol.com. Maybe we'll stay at WGBB, maybe not, but I hope to continue Dave's Gone By for a long time somewhere. And if you want to know where that where will be, 
email me, davesgoneby at AOL.com. And if you want to know what zany items are on this week's News Gone By, then just stay tuned because the cerebral revelry commences just 60 seconds from... Now! Performing Arts Insider, three words that represent a whole world of entertainment found on Broadway, Off-Broadway, Cabaret. Hundreds of productions to see and enjoy. But how can you keep them all straight? Performing Arts Insider, the guide to everything that's happening on the stages of New York. For six decades, Performing Arts Insider has been a bible of the industry. Each issue lists hundreds of shows, who wrote them, what they're about, who's in the cast, the designers, the producers, box office info, parental guides, reviews of what's good, what's bad, and why. Plus, listings for opera, dance, and awards, too. As the chief editor of Backstage put it, Performing Arts Insider puts all the facts at your fingertips. To subscribe or get a sample issue, call 516-295-1511 or go to www.totaltheater.com and click on Performing Arts Insider. It's about mm, seven minutes after eight and time for the news gone by, a look at events of the past week from an up-educational perspective. In local news... I guess you can fight City Hall, or fight in it. On Wednesday, an opponent of Brooklyn Councilman James Davis opened fire in City Hall chambers and killed him. Plainclothes policemen then shot the assailant to death. Davis, a black minister, was brutally beaten by white cops back in 1983, but he then became a police officer himself. And he formed an urban youth organization called, ironically enough, Love Yourself, Stop the Violence. Police believed that Davis knew his assailant because that's the only way the guy could have gotten into the building with his gun. Mayor Bloomberg was in another office at the time, and unharmed, he was deeply rattled by the incident, though, telling reporters, Oh, I am so scared. This is a terrible day. I have never been so shaken, so moved, or so angry. In happier news, a 42-year-old man with a malignant tumor was the subject of the world's first human tongue transplant. The 14-hour operation was performed at Vienna's General Hospital. Now, doctors gave the unidentified patient the tongue of a donor with the same blood type. Assuming the new tongue isn't rejected, even then the man will never be able to taste with it. But he will have more normal speech and eating patterns than he would under the old procedure, which, no joke, used pieces of small intestine grafting onto the embraided area. At a hospital press conference hailing the success of the operation, hundreds of naked women turned up, only to be bitterly disappointed when told that while tongue transplants may soon be common, tongue implants are still years away. Speaking of surgery, the FDA is getting set to reapprove the use of silicone breast implants. The Food and Drug Administration took them off the market in 1992 after dozens of health complaints. But recent testing showed the silicon boobs were not responsible for breast cancer, lupus, or rheumatoid arthritis. So, the devices are poised for use once again alongside the currently available saline implants. Opponents say the reversal is being pushed through too fast, and the health studies aren't long-term enough to make a fair decision. So it remains to be seen whether this second chance for silicone will be nipped in the bud or bugged in the nips. It also remains to be seen whether the implants themselves have been refined to be more resilient and less brittle after years of use. I'm not saying that they harden unnaturally, but when contestants in a post-op wet t-shirt contest look like the skyline of Chicago, there's a problem. And now, co-anchor Joe Salzone with a little more news for us. Well, thanks, Dave. Also on the surgical front this week, a hospital worker in Orlando, Florida, was snipping the identity tag off a newborn baby's toe when the scissors slipped and she took off the whole toe. Doctors reattached the digit and apologized for the mistake when they, uh, they blamed that the radio was on the OR. Apparently, the worker was distracted by the song playing at the time, Footloose. Dave? And a Harvard Medical School study shows that the common test for prostate cancer misses tumors in senior-age men 82% of the time. The good news is that 82% of gay seniors don't mind taking the test over and over and over again. <laughs> Joe? And on occurrence, occurrence this week at Argentina's Mendoza City Zoo, a white polar bear be, uh, being treated for a rare skin condition received medicine that turned her a deep shade of purple. 
She's been separated from the other bears and is learning to tolerate the, the stares, jokes, and derision from zoo visitors. Zoo officials are a bit uneasy, though, as the bear has recently taken to smirking and endlessly humming the song, Purple's Pe- People Eater. Okay, well, See? we'll try that one again Thank uh, you. on another show. Thank the you. Broke. More zoo news. On Monday at Disney's Animal Kingdom in Buena Vista, Florida, Betsy the giraffe wandered near a tourist area and was struck there by lightning. The six-year-old giraffe was the first animal ever killed at the park by a lightning strike. Few visitors saw the freak accident, though the ones who did told their children, don't be scared, he's just the new mascot for the black toys. <laughs> oh, I should have let you read that one. Uh, thanks, Dave. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, i got to do this next one. Another freak accident, this one in Hagee. A high-voltage power line began to spark and then snapped, falling to the ground and electrocuting 15 spectators at a basketball game. An electric company spokesperson said he regretted the tragedy since most of those killed were teenagers and not even old enough to vault. Yes, 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 you know that sound. That's the sound of the comedy bell signaling the days gone by. Bad pun of the week. Every single week on this program, we make a play on words. So groan-inducing, so revolting, we have to stop everything and call your attention to it in a most annoying fashion. Hence... The Comedy Bell. Tonight's day has gone by. Bad Pun of the Week is brought to you by Leviathan Leviathan Media Group for your website and broadcasting needs. Leviathan Media Group. And we want to thank them for sponsoring this week's Bad Pun. And I want to remind you that there are so many other opportunities open for sponsorship of this program. Sponsor the News Gone By. Sponsor our World Weird Web segment. Sponsor the Interview segment. Or, if you've got the dough, sponsor the whole show. Hey, I'm a whore. You can sell crack cigarettes to three-year-olds. If you pay me enough, I'll roll the papers. So give us a call, 516-295-1511. That's area code 516-295-1511. Or email davesgoneby at aol.com and ask about our ad rates and sponsorship opportunities. It's cheaper than you think. It's worth every penny, and it's the best advertising dollars you'll ever spend. Call 516 516- Two nine five one five one one, or email Dave's Gone By at AOL.com and let your product, service, or store or bodily function caress our listeners' ears, just as our friends at Leviathan Media Group did this week by sponsoring the Dave's Gone By Bad Pun of the Week. Continuing the news gone by with local news, New York City is close to striking a deal to bring 20 unisex pay toilets to Manhattan. Deputy Mayor Dan Doktoroff says the honey buckets would charge a nominal fee, less than a dollar for use. I don't know, a dollar isn't exactly nominal if you want to take a pee. I mean, you're doing the city a favor by not going behind a dumpster. They should pay you ten cents to hold it in until you reach a public lab. But still, I guess the fee would keep out homeless crazies who end up using them as vacation villas. The big payoff would not just come from usage, but from the sides of the kiosks being sold for advertising space. In fact, the Taco Bell restaurant chain has already expressed interest in advertising on the porta-potties. The slogan being, Go to Taco Bell for dinner, make room for dessert right here. On Broadway this week, first musical of the season, a revival of Roger Miller's country pop show, Big River. What's unusual about this remount of the 1985 Tony winner is that half the cast is deaf. So the show mixes both singing actors with signing actors. It's basically unheard of, well, at least by half the cast, but a spokesperson for the show said the mix of hearing and non-hearing actors will come as a revelation to theater goers, especially when they hear the show's signature tune, No, but seriously. Big River was the last major work of Roger Miller, one of our most iconoclastic and naturally gifted pop songwriters. I don't know if you got to read that article in the Times last week by Rocco Landisman, the guy who produced Big River on Broadway the first time. He jumped through hoops and lassos to get Miller, one of his idols, to try his hand at a Broadway musical. And Miller's hand was rather shaky at that point, because he'd spent years smoking, drinking, and snorting, sometimes all at once. The songwriter had never even read Huckleberry Finn, but Landisman was persistent. As Miller put it, he made me an offer I couldn't understand. It took a year and a half, but Miller came through, and Big River won not only the Best Musical Tony, 
but the Tonys for Best Book and Roger Miller's Music and Lyrics. Almost as exciting for Miller, the show was first produced at Harvard University, the last place this dirt-poor bumpkin, who once said he flunked school bus, ever thought he'd be. Big River was a smash hit, and among its cast featured John Goodman as Huck's alcoholic father, Pap. Of course, Goodman went on to Roseanne and a movie career. When he left Big River early in the run, among the people taking over his role were Roger Miller, making his Broadway debut. Miller recorded several songs from his Big River score on a solo album. Here's one of them, with Miller as Pap singing the ever-timely Rage Against the Machine, Govman. Your dad gum government, you sorry so and so's. You got your damn hands in every pocket of my clothes. Well, you dad gum, dad gum, dad gum government. Uh huh. Oh, don't you know? Oh, don't you love them sometimes? Uh huh. Well, you dad gum government, you better pay attention. You're setting up there like a fool's convention with your dead gum, dead gum, dead gum government. Uh huh. Oh, don't you know? Oh, don't you love me sometimes? Uh huh. Well, you soul selling no good sons of a shoe fitting fire starters. Ought to tell you no good preambulatory bone frame. And nail it to your government walls. All of you, you, you dead gum government. You sorry rapper projects. You got yourself an itch and you want me to scratch it. Well, you dead gum, dead gum, dead gum government. Uh huh. Oh, don't you know? Oh, don't you love me sometimes? Yeah. Roger Miller, with a song he sang on Broadway, Give Men. And the opinions in that song do reflect those of this program and host, Dave Lefkowitz, for Dave's Gone By. The success of Big River turned Roger Miller's life around and allowed him to live a more sedate, less chemical existence until his death in 1992. If you just label him a country singer or a novelty tunesmith, you're missing the point. He was his own man musically, sometimes writing lyrics that any professional songwriter would have handed back and said, you're off the beat, make it scan, fix the end rhymes. But he made them work, on everything from Engelin Swings to King of the Road to the unmatchable Dang Me. And I should mention, by the way, that I saw the new production of Big River this week, and uh, it's a good show, especially if you have younger folks that you want to take to a Broadway show, perhaps for the first time. Um, I do recommend it on that level. As far as Roger Miller's score... I hate to say it, but it's not that great. It's okay and very appropriate for the scenes and the mood and the tone. It fits very well with Bill Houtman's book. But I can't say it's terribly memorable. And even in the good songs in the show, the really catchy ones, there aren't obvious country ABAB kind of songwriting things. Uh, Miller will do this where he'll write a few good lyrics and then repeat them three or four times for the rest of the song instead of bothering to come up with as a Sondheim would as, well, not to to use that obvious example, but as more professional Broadway songwriters would to to go the extra level and write some extra lyrics to make the whole song interesting and not just the first verse and chorus. Anyway, of course, it's still The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, so the story works. There's a little too much narration in the piece, but it does make you want to go back and read Mark Twain, and that's not a knock, and the mix of deaf and hearing actors does add something even at times if it's just giving you more to look at if you're a little bored by the songs or, or know what's going to happen next. There are also some surprising moves using the, the two kinds of actors. In fact, in, in the second act, you have a deaf actor pretending to be a hearing character who is pretending to be a deaf character. And why bother with all this? Because as Jim sings in one song, Jim the, uh, the Runaway Slave, Huck can never completely enter into his world, into his society. They both live in the same place, but not in the same way. And uh, I guess we can graph that on to hearing and deaf people. We really don't know their world. So critics kind of ruined the best moment in the show. If you read the reviews, not just the New York Times, but they kind of told you, okay, watch for this, the audience really loves this part, 
And they're right, but because they told it, it sort of, you waited for it, and it wasn't as special. So I'm not going to tell you. If you go see it, you'll know when it happens, and it's pretty neat. So I give it three stars at a quarter star if you really like country music, or like Mark Twain, or as I said, if you have kids. And speaking of youngings, getting back to the news gone by, a Vancouver man tried to protect a group of ducklings from stone-throwing teenagers. Seeing his valor, the teens started throwing stones at him. Not only that, the kids punched the Good Samaritan and hit him with a rock. Five males are being sought, all about 16 years old. Witnesses say the boys are basically good kids. They're just fighting for a duck-free Palestine. Joe? (laughs) Also on the nature front, visitors crowded around the U.S. Botanical Garden in Washington, D.C. this week. The occasion was the flowering of the Titan Aurum plant, which only blooms once every ten years. According to Newsday, and of course they're never wrong, the Indonesian plant is nicknamed the corpse flower because when it opens up, it lets off a stink of rotting meat. Observers have therefore suggested it be renamed the Madonna tree. Thank you. Or flower. (laughs) Thank you, Joe. No, tree tree was actually funny, too. (laughs) And stop me if you've heard this news. An elderly man plowed his car into a crowded farmer's market, causing mayhem and terrible injuries. No, I didn't do this story last week. That was a different elderly man in Santa Monica, California. This time, it's a geezer in Flagler Beach, Florida, who lost control of his automobile and injured six people at the market. Granted, this accident proved much less deadly than the West Coast calamity, but officials are already seeing a pattern to these attacks by so-called homicide juicers. The Florida man was heard to say, These car crashes will not stop until we have a home for free and independent grapefruits. The Fruit Pickers Union refuses to negotiate with these renegades, a spokesperson saying they would deal only with kindly old people who stay home and garden and play the television too loud. Behind the scenes, though, the union is bargaining with these freedom fruiters, promising them full social security benefits, dinners beginning at 3.30 instead of 4, and more visits from their ungrateful children. An old person spokesperson spoke on condition of anonymity, saying, We will not halt these attacks until every grapefruit is back in its rightful home in Miami. However, as a show of good faith, the cars used in the crashes will no longer be pre-doused with old man smell. In obituary news, some unusual dead people this week. First off, David Hampton, age 39, died of complications from AIDS a couple of weeks ago. And if that name isn't familiar, his history is. Hampton was the guy who visited rich people's homes and convinced them he was a wealthy prep school kid, a friend of their own children, and son of movie star Sidney Poitier. Hampton, of course, was immortalized in the play and film Six Degrees of Separation, and he became something of a thorn in the side of its author, John Guare. Hampton tried to sue Guare for $100 million for taking his life story, but he lost twice. He then hounded Guare with death threats, though he was acquitted of harassment. Hampton ended up spending nearly two years in prison on burglary charges, and he wound up dying in an AIDS hostel, news of his death only reaching the media nearly a month after he kicked. So I guess he got his comeuppance from society. I just wonder, when he first got to the afterlife, did he try to tell St. Peter, look, my dad is the angel Gabriel, and he's going to be really distraught if I don't get into heaven. But David Hampton is only one of several offbeat obits this week. Whatever Hampton's faults, he was a piker in the world of big lead SOBs, two of whom were taken out in a firefight with U.S. forces in Iraq, Uday and Kusay Hussein. Two brothers who made the Menendez boys look like Fluffy and Uranus on the Duckman cartoons. But now Uday and Kusay are Dude and Compost. Their father, Saddam Hussein, wasn't at the villa where the siblings were silenced. He's still at large, public enemy number one. But his kids were two other aces in the most wanted deck. And the Bush crew hope that their demise will prove to the Iraqis that, indeed, the Hussein regime is history. Stories are legion of Uday's hot-headedness, his calculated brutality and sadism as head of his dad's paramilitary forces. Kusay was said to be more moderate, but no Boy Scout either. When troops captured Uday's mansion in Baghdad, they found a million dollars in vintage wines and spirits, tacky paintings of naked women, Cuban cigars, heroin, and his own personal zoo, complete with lions and cheetahs. It really wasn't Uday's taste, but he was stuck with it, 
after appearing on an episode of TV's Trading Spaces with Michael Jackson. Now, the segment never aired because in the middle of it, Uday brutally raped perky host Paige Davis, while Jackson lit a cigar and accidentally set his face on fire. And one more fiend hit the bone pile this week. Former Ugandan dictator Idi Amin Dada died. Human Rights Watch... <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I love that. Human Rights Watch called Amin, quote, one of the bloodiest tyrants in, bl- in a bloody century. I thought he'd been dead for years, actually, but he was living untouched in exile in Saudi Arabia since 1979. His decade-long rule resulted in well over 100,000 massacres, and he's long remembered for helping those Palestinians who hijacked an El Al jet to Entebbe back in 1976. Still, the Saudis won't let Amin be prosecuted, or they wouldn't let him be prosecuted for war crimes, because he's been a guest in their country for two decades. So, in his sunset years, Amin sired 43 children by four wives, and lived on a government stipend. So much for the wages of sin. Perhaps Idi Amin's most famous comment was how he tasted human flesh and found it too salty. Granted, that almost sounds quaint compared to these child soldiers in Liberia who snack on roasted human hearts to give themselves courage. But still, good riddance to Idi Amin made the worms and maggots find his flesh tasting just right. But not just conmen and criminals died this week. Farewell to Elizabeth Welch, the near-legendary songstress who died on Tuesday at a London retirement home. She was 99 years old, and what a career she had. In 1923, her church choir was picked to sing in the Broadway show Running Wild, and it was Welch who introduced the song The Charleston. Said Welch, quote, Because I had a loud voice, I was chosen to sing Charleston, but when the chorus girls came on, they quickly yanked me off because I couldn't dance. Ah, but she could sing. So, when the Black Review Blackbirds came to Broadway, the New York-born Welch followed it to Paris and also cut a recording of two of the songs from the show. Her strict Baptist father was so scandalized by Elizabeth's move to the showbiz, he completely froze her out and then left the family, never to be heard from again. But Welch was heard again in 1931 on Broadway singing Cole Porter's Love for Sale, which back then was considered a pretty filthy number, as it dealt with prostitution. Porter wrote other material just for Welch, and she stayed mostly in London for the next 40 years, having a career, like a lot of English actors, on TV, radio, and film. She returned to Broadway in the 1970s with a role in Pippin, and was then rediscovered in the 1980s doing an off-Broadway show, A Time to Start Living. I saw her in 1986 in the Broadway review, Jerome Kern Goes to Hollywood, It was one of those standard reviews we still get pretty much every year. Four or five men and women, in the first act they're in cocktail wear, and then they change into formal evening wear, so we have something different to look at. And they just sing song after song with some biographical tidbits about the composer thrown in here and there. All very pleasant and usually pretty boring, the Jerome Kern show being no exception. But when Elizabeth Welch took the stage, for no reason except her age grace and sheer quiet presence. The audience hushed, and a little magic happened. She stood in the spotlight and sang Smoke Gets in Your Eyes in a quavering but still confident and often lovely voice. I don't remember anything else about that show, but I'll always remember that. And the world will certainly remember the late Elizabeth Welch. Bye-bye, Blackbird. Thank you.
July 27, 2003. Please send your comments, opinions, and silicone implants to Dave's Gone By, P.O. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. That's the address for all snail mail to the program, Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. Or email me at davesgoneby at aol.com or leave a message at 516-295-1511. We reserve the right to read your letters and emails on the air, name withheld upon request. And folks, I've said it before and I'll say it again, Dave's Gone By is here to stay. Even if it's not on this radio station, the show will have a future. So please, lend a hand. Tell everyone you know about the show. Go ye amongst the heathen crowd and spread the gospel of Dave's Gone By. And get ye on the mailing list for updates about the show, Dave's Gone By at AOL.com. And quoth ye from the scriptures of our website, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. So many ways to worship and give Dave your glory glory. So many ways to let me know your thoughts, email, telephone, snail mail. I look forward to hearing from you, but please, no human flesh. I'm allergic. Back after this. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Dave's Gone By, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're thinking, well, this episode is alright, but the one from last week, oh boy, or the Christmas show, or the Australian one, or the... My God, what a feast of entertainment I have given you. But it's all over so fast. You hear it once on the radio, and it's gone by. But not anymore. I've got the archives, baby, and I'm going to share them. Almost every single episode of Dave's Gone By is now available on audio cassette. Relive the golden moments of The Giving Chimp, The Enema Blues, Steve the Whistler, Seamus the Urine Man, and so much more. If you don't remember which segment aired when, just check the archive page of our website, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. Cassettes are just $10 each, and if you buy two or more, only $9 each. To order, just pick the air date you want and call 516-295-1511 or email davesgoneby at aol.com. That's 516-295-1511 or email davesgoneby at aol.com. Hours of music, talk radio, and comedy, only $10 a tape, shipping included. Makes a great Rosh Hashanah gift. I guess. So call 516-295-1511 and get classic episodes of Dave's Gone By. Because you can. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. It's about 8.35 and I am so pleased to have a special guest with us tonight. Um, I used to work not quite for him, not quite with him, but in the same general company many, many years ago. He was on the editorial side of... Uh, Playboy magazine, and um, I was kind of on the advertising side, but you know, we became kind of good friends and acquaintances, and he left there to, to really go out on his own and try his hand at being a real freelance writer and columnist, and he's moved into that in, in a pretty exciting way and doing a lot of political satire, which can be kind of chancy, especially under the current administration and mindset. Anyway, as I said at the top of the program, his uh, his comedy and his writing appears in places as uh, disparate as NPR, the Los Angeles Times, Parenting Magazine, USA Today, The Daily News, Salon.com, Psychology Today, Newsweek, The New York Post. Oh, my God. Ladies and gentlemen, all I can say to all that is welcome to my special guest, Bruce 
Kluger. Hey, David. Hey, Bruce. Good to hear you. Hey, listen, I was listening before, and uh, maybe I'm getting old and forgot. What was the pun of the day? I heard all the advertising, but then I didn't hear the pun. Oh, my God. Oh, thank you so much for asking. The Dave's gone by... Bad pun of the week. Not pun of the, of the week. Which, what was it this week? Yeah. Which, by the way, was, was brought to us by Leviathan Media Group. It was, let's see, what joke did I make? It was... Oh, it was the Taco Bell. Yes, and I had to... No, no, it wasn't the... It was the Comedy Bell. I ring the Comedy Bell. Right. But, no, Taco Bell was not the joke. The joke was, oh, the, uh, the kids who were electrocuted? No, you didn't do it. Yes, I did. They weren't old enough to volt. Get oh, it? Oh, V-O-L-T. Yes, and I, then I, even, yeah, I think I, maybe I groaned so loud that maybe I just blocked yeah. it. There you go. And you even missed like the second joke. I came in there with with revolting. Get it? Revolting. Oh, no, they I must. I high just voltage. must have blanked. It must be you, your dazzling style. You had to do. Well, well, thank you, thank you, Bruce, and th- thanks. Anyway, uh, but I don't want to spend all this time talking about my stuff. Actually, I do. But you're here, so I'm not going to talk about you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So, you left Playboy. Back when? This is about more I than 10 years ago. Um, oh, oh, only 99. So you were there for, for quite a while. I, w- I was there from 86 to 99. Mm-hmm. And it was great. It was a blast. You know, uh, I remember once Christy Hefner actually at a, uh, a company-wide meeting was talking about the challenge of it being a three-ring circus because every, every month was a different issue and every month was, you know, new programming on the channel and all that. And she called it a circus, and it was. It was a good, fun circus. But then when the carousel came around, every couple of years, the carousel would come around for me, and I'd say, you know, it's going to be harder and harder to get off the carousel and, and take a stab at this on my own. So I left in 99 and spent, oh, I would say, uh, you know, uh, I landed a few regular gigs ba- playing off the, the the beats that I had at Playboy, which were the, uh, either celebrity interviews or um, a home video and that was pre-DVD. Right, and so these I were regular, by the way, they're, they're not adult videos. These were the basic movies right, coming out. Right, they were real movies. We did, yeah. we did, rarely did uh, adult in the magazine. However, I, sh- I should let you know that, that when I was covering video for Playboy, uh, as you might recall, David, I would get screening copies of X-rated videos by the tons. And oh, almost, I don't recall that. You never me? shared those with me, dude. Uh, and... and I didn't. No. Every Friday, there was virtually a line outside my office, and I, what I found most sociologically and sexually interesting is the the, the people lining up to you know borrow from this little lending library purposes. were predominantly women. Oh my gosh. Yes. So I always found that interesting. It sort of goes back to the theory that they say that in department stores, uh, most men's underwear, like ninety percent, is bought by women. So maybe there's a corollary there. Mm, I don't know. I think that that would be a little different. I mean, uh, that, that's sort of a, a purchase. Women are the better shoppers, and they like to buy for their men. The, the, the porno thing, I don't know. Not that I'm an expert on such things, but... Uh, no, no. Yeah, no, certainly not. But did you save a couple for me? You know, next time I see you. Yeah. Sure, yeah. sure. But they're still at my office back on Fifth Avenue, and I don't know what to do about that. Oh, well. <laughs> you have an office on Fifth Avenue, you have no worries, dude. But anyway... Um, talk to me still. You're, you've been doing not just... I mean, you've been writing about parenting because you, you're a husband and father and all that kind of stuff. But you've also been trying to make your way as a political satirist, right. columnist, pundit sort of thing. Right. Not no, the I, thing. I, I, I sort of stumbled into that. And incidentally, no, the, uh, the Playboy office was at Fifth Avenue. I work out of my home. Um, I, uh, I moved into doing op-eds for a, a couple of newspapers and... One of the, the, the catches and one of the, the, the challenges of op-eds is, of course, they're based on the events of the day. Uh, and unlike articles that you pitch to other magazines or to newspapers, you, you don't write pitches, you know, a two- or three-paragraph idea uh, and pass it to an op-ed editor because they are fluid. They move with the news. So what, what winds up happening is that you, you know, whereas you would expend X amount of energy to write a 600-word pitch, you expend X plus four energy to write the oh, actual 800-word yeah. <laughs> essay. And so you wind up, or one winds up, with a lot of stuff that's never bought because it's, it's time has passed. But in the process of doing that, I found that I had, a, had sort of a, uh, a good feel for not doing a serious op-ed or perhaps doing a seriously written op-ed, but perhaps a serious op-ed with a funny spin. Actually, one, one thing that I am curious about, since you do have to do that, and your pieces are relatively short, even, even on the radio, um, 
and I don't know if, if the amount has changed between when you first started doing this freelance work and now, but of the pe- what percentage would you say of uh, the somebody stuff you write? Somebody asked the other day. I, I'm now, well, now it's different because uh, after a, a couple years, USA Today has now made me a member of their board of contributors, which cool. means that they, you know, send out a memo that says, hey, Jessica Lynch is being released this week. Does anybody have a spin on it? So now the percentage has gotten significantly better because now I can call my editor at USA Today and say, hey, how about if I do something and just knock the idea around. But for a good couple of years, I would say I was, I was batting um, oh, between 250 and 300, which means that... For uh, every... Uh, I, th- I think I can figure that math out. For every four pieces you write, one would get sold? Uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, and between that, yeah. Between one out, one out of four or one out of three. And, uh, and it's, you know, naturally it's frustrating... But interestingly, it is like baseball in that 333 is considered good, but it's it's tough. And the, the add the problem, it it can't even you can't even rest back and say, well, that's okay because then when I become famous, I can release an anthology of all the pieces because you know we have a very funny take, for example, on I have a very funny take on stem cells, and well, they had, they had a rather amusing take on you, by the way. <laughs> It would take, it was perfect for that week. But if you were to put it in a book form and, you know, put stuff in, it's hard to get the public thinking about stem cells again. Uh, it, it's quite interesting how fluid the news is and how, how much you retain and how much you don't retain. I was watching a, a specialty on Gianni Versace, a, um, a documentary, and to my complete astonishment, I said, what was the name of the man who shot Gianni Versace? And do you remember at the time... He was on the cover of news magazines. He led the news every single... Do you remember, actually, David? I, I mean, I remember her being shot, or, or him being shot. I don't remember well, his name. Yeah, I could not his uh, name was Andrew Kinnanen. Okay. But mm. at that time, it was yeah. on the lips. So, in other words, I, I say, as I'm trying to say, the, the, the backlog of stuff that's not used becomes, you know, it, it was good for the time, and there that they will all sit on my computer. Well, yeah, the ultimate irony, of I was... Um, I got out of the library the last Michael Moore book in which he just basically blasts and excoriates the, the Bush administration, which you would figure would still be timely, except he wrote it and it was published probably about three months before 9-11. Right. So, you know, I, I got this book out and it just, I couldn't even read it because it was like th- there was no context anymore. Everything he was saying was, sor- was true in its way, but, but it didn't, there was no reason to read it after 9-11. It had to be updated in every which way. Well, interesting that 9-11 played a factor in, in uh, one facet of my, um, uh, the work that I do now. Um, in, in the course of writing op-ed, somewhere around 19, oh, maybe it was about 2000, um, I became friends with a man named David Slavin because we both have two daughters very close in age. We do a lot of play dates and parties together, and he lives down the block. And he's a very funny guy. He's a voiceover artist. And I was writing one op-ed for some place somewhere. It was the Los Angeles Times. And I know that his sense of humor was along the lines of mine. So I said, what do you think of this? And he gave me some tweaking that was not only so good, but so improved it that we tried our hand at a piece together. And, uh, you know, I will be the first to admit that before this experience, I think that writing, for the most part, is is a non-collaborative craft. It's a very difficult craft to do by oneself, let alone in the collaborative process. It was quite the opposite with David. He and I just finished each other's sentences, and it was, it was a joy. So we began writing op-eds together, and vis-a-vis uh, 9-11, we had had a column that was pretty popular on uh, Salon.com called Memo to George, in which we wrote internal memos from George's staff, uh, Bush's staff, which was always fun because you could ascribe to them all of the villainry that, you know, one suspects, right. but do it in their own voices. And we were, we were on a pretty good roll. And we were uh, a premium item on the web and uh, on their website, and then 9-11 happened, and suddenly all the rules changed about making fun of the President of the United States. Well, that, that, that is where I, I kind of wanted to take the direction of this, because I did want to know, in the past couple of years, um, you have encountered censorship. You haven't encountered even pre-censorship. Uh, people pre-censoring themselves right. or their, their newspapers or, or, or columns to 
not run into trouble? Can you give us, without necessarily naming names, but do if you can, uh, an example or two of what you've run into? Well, no, it just all depends on your it all depends on your artist, uh, on your audience. There are, for example, certain types of articles at USA Today because it's the you know if you think about it, one of the only national newspapers we have that would step up to an issue, but perhaps not in the sarcastic or vitriolic, well, well certainly not the vitriolic, well, I shouldn't say vitriolic, but in the smart-assy way that Dave and I did on Salon, mm-hmm. um, or uh, that only has two columns, two guest columns a day, so maybe they don't, they usually don't lead to satirical pieces. Um, NPR is another example. NPR is has uh, where a Dave and I have predominantly been concentrating for the past year on national public radio and all things considered, and it has been a gas. But a peculiar problem that NPR uh, experiences is that they are constantly being accused by the political right of being a tool for the political left, which they're certainly not. They they are, as far as I'm concerned, fair and balanced. But but they come off as a commodity as someone who expresses the view of the left because the industry is so awash in right right now that they sound more left than they are. But there have been instances in which Dave and I have a nice nice sketch poking fun at, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe the rebuilding effort in Iraq. And it might be, it might be appropriate for a piece on NPR to take a you know, jab at, uh, oh, I don't know, the, the, the French and the Germans coming on and saying, let us be part of the rebuilding effort when they were so against the war in the first place. But then if you step over to the line to uh, indicate, uh, implicate maybe, um, oh, I don't know, what are they called? Halliburton. Halliburton yeah. Or someone else. You, you, you suddenly shift the focus of the piece to a real stab at Bush where you were getting yucks before making fun of the French. And, of course, everybody likes to make fun of the French. Well, of course. So... And then again, again, everybody likes a good stab at Bush, but that brings us back to the porn issue. No, I'm, I'm, I'm right, sorry. Right, right, there you go. Just diverting with sarcasm there. Uh, oh you know, I could always set my watch to those comments. Um, Actually, the, the thing is, we've got less than two minutes left in this segment, and I did promise people that you were going to tell a little bit of, about your feud with Bill O'Reilly. So let's I went on, I wrote an uh, article about how rude Bill O'Reilly was. I re- published it in USA Today. And um, just that he was that he was rude and ill-mannered, that he doesn't let uh, people express their opinions. And he apparently began calling my home, or his people began calling my home at nine o'clock that morning. He was ranting about me all day on the radio and invited me on his program. And I bit, I took him, I took him up on his offer. I had to think about it all day, and then I realized that if I did in fact go on the show, the worst case scenario was did, did he make mincemeat of me. And I thought, you know what, that's okay, because then he'll only serve to illustrate my point. So I went on his show and got to tell the man to his face that, you know, he was ill-mannered and rude, and he called me a weasel, which I was sort of flattered about, because he called George Clooney a weasel, and hey, you know, right. I, I, I could be compared to George Clooney. That, that, that's not a bad day, right? Right, exactly. So then I wrote another article for the Los Angeles Times uh, about what it was like to appear on the O'Reilly Factor and how it's all a setup and how the man doesn't permit you to talk yet they use almost psycho ops on you beforehand. It's, it was a very unpleasant, and that infuriated him. That infuriated him. He was furious that I would go and publish uh, a piece about what it was like to be a sort of backstage look at him. So, so, uh, so how has that wound up rather quickly between you, uh, since then? Have you well, interestingly, uh, Roger Ailes, the uh, CEO of Fox, uh, wrote a letter to the publisher of, um, of the Los Angeles Times, sort of dirty tricking me, saying that the only reason that I was writing nasty articles about Bill O'Reilly was because I wanted a job at Fox and was turned down, which was patently untrue. But again, I, I, he's, he's figured out that I'm trying to to ride on, you know, his name popularity, because now when he complains about me on, his air, on the air, he doesn't mention me by name. He just says, the fellow who's making his living by trashing me. And I would like to correct him and say, no, I'm trying to make a living by <laughs> trashing you, Bill. I just can't make enough money doing it. Well, keep trashing him. Keep trashing, keep trashing all the people that you want to, whether I agree or anybody agrees with you or not, because that's what it's all about. I want to thank you so much for not trashing me on my own program. Um, I wanted to ask you so much other stuff, and that there were 
like a list of other questions. Well, we'll do it another time. Please, Bruce. It's, it's been great. I want to thank you again so much. Bruce Kluger, ladies and gentlemen. My pleasure, David. Look for his pieces with David Slavin on NPR. Look for his uh, stuff in the L.A. Times and in, in USA Today. And uh, just look for him around town with his two girls. And, <laughs> and if you're an O'Reilly fan, you know, you know where to hit him. So thank you, Bruce. Thanks, David. Have a great night. You too. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. going to cap the show now with a little bit of nostalgia. Uh, time for a birthday salute. On August 1st, 1942, Jerry Garcia was born, and just so happens that's the same day I'm flying to San Francisco at the end of this week. Um, just totally coincidental. I didn't know about the Garcia connection, so I figure be a good thing to pay tribute to him since I'll be on his old stomping ground and Garcia actually died also in August on August 9th 1995 I was not a Grateful Dead fan until much later in life and even then I still am only into a few songs here and there Friend of the Devil Box of Rain lots of stuff on the Achamacha album and this song off the 1971 live album it's uh, titled simply Grateful Dead long song but it built so purposefully and has such a hypnotic riff that for me it epitomizes what was best about the dead they'd set a mood with a song play with it riff with it and at their very best bring it full circle into something powerful and beautiful so in tribute to the late jerry garcia who would have turned 61 on tuesday this is wharf rat
wharf rat, and I'm going to be a wharf rat myself next week, heading to the Siren Song of San Francisco for a few days. A couple of weeks ago, I was in L.A., now I'm heading a bunch of miles north. I've never been to San Fran, and I'm tremendously looking forward to it. Going to see the Golden Gate Bridge, Union Square, Fisherman's Wharf, Chinatown. Going to see whether I love San Francisco or just hate Ashbury. And hopefully I'll be back in two weeks to tell you all about it. Next week, uh, I do have another brand new show planned for you. It's pre-taped, and it's all music. Uh, Just a lot of the stuff I've I've been listening to recently, artists like Clem Snide and Ed Harcourt, Mary Fall, Amy Mann, some some wonderful, wonderful music, almost wall-to-wall the entire show, but brand new stuff, so tune in next Sunday at 8, and then I'll be back myself here live August 10th. And still, I can't guarantee week to week whether I'll be on, so you just got to keep tuning in or get your name on my mailing list, Dave's Gone By at AOL.com. And we'll keep you posted on when and where the next episode of Dave's Gone By will be. I just have time left for a few thank yous, beginning with my special guest, Bruce Kluger. Be sure to catch his radio pieces with David Slaving on NPR, and look for his columns and essays in a bunch of different magazines and newspapers. Thank you also to Joe Salzone, the engineer who keeps my engine running. Listen to his new show tonight at 10. Plus, don't miss his long-running show, Joe Salzone Live, Saturday nights at 7.30. Thank you to Station Manager Jeff, to the folks at Bono Brian Brown, and to my wife, Joyce, for everything, as always. And thank you at home and in your cars for finding me every week. Hopefully that will get easier as the radio station moves forward. Pretty soon they should have web streaming back up, so keep checking am1240wgbb.com for that. I'll be on, uh, you know, I'll be on tape next week, and barring an earthquake, back live on the 10th. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Good night. Have a San Fantastic week. And gone by. Twelve forty WGBB Freeport.